0: Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series of sermons today on Paul's letter to the Philippians. And in this connection, I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, as we read the verses 9 through 11, hear God's holy word. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word to our hearts. Dear friends, everyone loves a rags-to-riches story. One of the most famous of these in English literature is Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. Oliver Twist was a young orphan boy in England who escaped the rigors of the workhouse only to find himself in the company of young thieves and pickpockets, recruited by the Jew Fagan and his counterpart Bill Sykes. After suffering many trials and setbacks, Oliver is eventually adopted by a wealthy man and goes on to inherit a great fortune. But the best rags-to-riches story was written by God himself, and it is recorded for us by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. The Apostle Paul had been exhorting the congregation of Philippi to pursue after unity. In verses 1 and 2, he describes what this unity looks like. It involves being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. He then goes on to provide four motives to unity, consolation in Christ, comfort of love, fellowship of the Spirit, affection and mercy. And then in verses 3 and 4, he outlines the attitudes that are necessary in order to achieve this unity, doing nothing through selfish ambition or conceit, in lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than oneself looking out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Well, now to close this discussion, Paul in verses 5 through 8 holds up the Lord Jesus Christ as an example by tracing the steps of his state of humiliation. And his point is that if we are ever going to achieve unity in the church, its members must imitate the Lord Jesus Christ, especially with respect to to his humility. But this is not the end of the story, so to speak. For after his great humiliation, Christ experienced great exaltation. From rags, Christ went on to enjoy great riches. And it's to this part of the story that we now turn our attention with the Lord's help. Our theme is the glorious exaltation of Christ. And we'll consider, first of all, the sacrifice he made, secondly, the name he was given, and thirdly, the glory he received. Paul, in our text, describes God's exaltation of his Son, the Lord Jesus. He writes, Therefore God also has highly exalted him. Now, the Greek word that Paul uses here is huper upso. and This is a compound word, meaning it's made up of two separate words, the word huper and upso. Now, from the Greek word huper, we get the English word hyper, which is often used as a prefix to mean greatly or excessively. In this case, the word means greatly or super exalted, literally hyper exalted. So God greatly or hyperly exalted his Son. Now, why did God do this? Well, Paul tells us in verses 6 through 8. There Paul writes that although Christ was in the form of God, and did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, nevertheless he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Christ humbled himself by becoming a man, by suffering and by dying on the cross. Now, that was the greatest humiliation imaginable. Why? Because Christ descended from the highest height to the lowest depth. Paul says he was in the form of God, and he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he says that Christ was God. But what did he do? Well, he who was God became a man. And not just any man, but the lowest of men. He became what Paul calls a bond servant, and even subjected himself to the death of a cross, which was the greatest humiliation, the most humiliating, the most painful, the most cursed death imaginable. Now there's no greater humili- humiliation than this. And now as a reward for this humiliation, the Father exalted his Son. Now that this is the meaning is clear from the very first word of our text, the word therefore. Having traced the various steps of the humiliation of our Lord in verses 6 through 8, Paul goes on to say in verse 9 that therefore God highly exalted him. The Father exalted the Son because the Son humbled himself before the Father. And so we learn here that God delights in humility. In Psalm 138, verse 6, the psalmist writes, Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Why does God hate pride and delight in humility? Well, because the proud tend to vaunt themselves against God, which God hates, whereas the humble tend to submit themselves to God, which God loves. What is more, humility accentuates the great distance between God and us. The more humble we become, the more God is magnified, and nothing delights God more than to be magnified. In ancient times, when you came into the presence of a great king, you would have to literally lie on the floor before him with your face to the ground. And that was because this is the lowest posture one can assume. It's a posture that speaks of complete and utter submission and lowliness. And it conversely exalts the one in whose presence we come. And so it is with respect to God. God delights in humility because humility magnifies him. And those who magnify God will be exalted. Don't we see a beautiful example of that in the parable of the publican and the Pharisee in the temple? Jesus says in the temple there were these two men. There was a Pharisee and a publican. And the Pharisee stood and he prayed to God and he listed off all of his supposed virtues. I fast twice a week, he said. I give tithes of all that I possess. But the tax collector stood afar off, Jesus says. And he would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat upon his breast and he said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And yet Jesus said it was the publican and not the Pharisee who went down to his house justified. Why? Jesus puts it like this. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now this is repeated several times in the New Testament. In Matthew 23, verses 10 to 12, Jesus says, And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And in Luke 14, verses 8 through 11, I won't read the whole thing, but at the end of that passage, Jesus says again, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now James says something similar in James 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves, he says, in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And Peter, in 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6, says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And so the point is that those who, like Christ, are humbled will be exalted. Those who humble themselves will be exalted by God. Now what a powerful incentive we have here to be humble like Christ. Humility is despised by the world. The world says you need to be assertive. You need to stand up for yourself. Don't let anyone trample on your rights or assault your dignity. But the Bible teaches something very different indeed. The Bible teaches that God delights in humility. The truly blessed in the sight of God are not the proud Not the arrogant, not the self-sufficient and the assertive, but the meek and the humble. and They and they alone will be exalted. And we see that in the person of his own son, Jesus Christ. God highly exalted his son. And he did so as a reward for humbling himself before his father. But now, what does that mean exactly? How did the Father exalt the Son? Well, he did so by giving him an exalted name. And that brings us to our second point. Paul says that God highly exalted his Son. Now, he did that in several ways. He did that by raising him from the dead. He did it by causing him to ascend into heaven. He did it by seating him at his right hand in glory He did it by sending him back to the earth to judge the living and the dead. In all of these ways, God exalted or will exalt the Son. But Paul focuses on something different in our text. He focuses on his name. He says that God exalted his Son by giving him a name. And not just any name, but a special name. A name, Paul says, that is above every name. Now you know that the Lord Jesus Christ has many names. He's called in the Bible Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He is the Messiah, the Lord, the First and the Last, the Beginning and the End, the Alpha and the Omega the Ancient of Days, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords, God with us, God our Savior, the only wise God our Savior, the Lord who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. He is the Logos, the light of the world, the light of life, the tree of life, the word of life, the bread that came down from heaven, the resurrection, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus has many names. The name that God gives his son is a special name. It is a name that is above all of these names. Now, what is this name? Well, some might say that the name is Jesus. And that's because in verse 10, Paul writes that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. But notice something. Paul does not say that at the name Jesus every knee should bow. He writes at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. So it's not the name Jesus, but the name that belongs to Jesus, or rather was bestowed on Jesus. Now what is that name? Well, it is the name Lord. And that's clear from verse 11. After declaring that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, Paul goes on to say that every tongue should also confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here Paul ascribes to the Lord Jesus the name Lord. That is the name that is above every name. This is the name that the Father has bestowed on his Son. It is the name Lord. Now why is that name above every name? Why not any other name? Well, because this is the name that reveals that Jesus is God. But we know that because it's likely that Paul here is thinking about Isaiah 45, verse 23. There in Isaiah 45, verse 23, Isaiah quotes God himself as saying this, To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. Now Paul takes those words spoken by God himself and he applies them to Christ. And he's saying that by giving him the name Lord, God is declaring his divinity. He's declaring that his own Son is God. So we see here how wrong it is for Jehovah's Witnesses and Christadelphians and others It is for them to deny the divinity of Jesus Christ. If God himself declares Jesus to be divine, how dare anyone deny it? To do so is to call God a liar. The point is, God highly exalted his Son, and he did so by giving him a name that is above every name, even the name Lord. Now, it's not hard to see how this name exalts the Son. No one was ever given that name before. Oh yes, the emperors of Rome took that title to themselves. They even demanded that the citizens of Rome address them as "curios," which in the Greek is the word for Lord. They wanted to be gods, and they wanted to be worshipped as gods, but they were not gods. Every one of them were weak and sinful and fallible men, who made mistakes and who died like all other men. And their names live on only in the history books. There is only one person who has ever lived who has the right to be called Lord, and that is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, because he received this name from God himself. Now, notice the fact that God gave Jesus this name is not meant to suggest that he did not have that name before. That would not be true. For Christ had this name from all eternity, for he was God from all eternity. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. But now this name will be known to all men. All men will know that he is Lord. And they will acknowledge this by bending their knee before him and confessing him as such before the world. Now that brings us to our third and final point. Paul says that God the Father will exalt his Son for a purpose. What is the purpose? It is so that before him every knee should bow. Now to bow or bend the knee is to adopt a posture of reverence and submission. Every knee will bow in submission and reverence before Christ. Yes, every knee. And Paul specifies here, of those in heaven, that's referring to the good angels and the saints who have gone on before us. He speaks of those on earth. That refers to those who remain on earth when our Lord comes again. And he speaks too of those under the earth. That refers to the demons and the damned in hell. They will all, Paul says, bend the knee before Christ. Now, what is more, they will all confess Him to be Lord. Now, some, for example, the angels and believers, will confess this willingly and gladly and joyfully. But others, like the demons and the damned in hell, will confess this unwillingly. It will be, in a manner of speaking, wrenched from their very lips. But they will confess it, whether they want to or not. And you say, when will that take place? Well, in a sense, this happens already now. Believers confess that he is Lord right now. And they live that way. But this will take place in full when our Lord comes again on the clouds of glory. Then as all men are summoned to the judgment seat of Christ, and as they behold him seated in all of his splendor, glory, and majesty on his throne, even the wicked and unbelieving will have no choice but to cry out, Jesus is Lord. Yes, even his enemies will bend the knee and confess his name. Why? Because they will see Christ descend from heaven in glory and majesty. And when he does, there will be no denying it. There will be no denying who he is and his name. He is the Lord of glory. And they will confess him as such, even though in this life they opposed him and hated him and fought against him. Dear friends, this will mark the culmination of our Lord's exaltation. Our Lord's exaltation began with his resurrection from the dead. It includes his ascension and his coronation and his being seated at the right hand of his father. But it culminates in this confession that he is Lord. Now there's a wonderful comfort in this name for all believers in Jesus Christ. My friends, if Jesus is Lord, then we have a king in heaven who will defend and preserve us against all of our enemies. And we have many enemies, don't we? We think of the world and the devil and our own sinful hearts. Sometimes those enemies can be very powerful, even too strong for us at times. And we can feel like we're losing the battle. But then we remember that we have a king in heaven, a Lord who is fighting for us and he shall overcome, and the victory will be his. And therefore we have nothing to fear. He will continue to gather, defend, and preserve his church until he comes again. But this name not only comforts, it also demands. For if Jesus is Lord, and he is, then that means we must believe on him. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is not an option. It is a command. God commands all men everywhere to repent and believe on him. He says, turn unto me all the ends of the earth. He says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Well, my friends, have you, have you done that? Have you repented? Have you believed have you turned to the lord have you embraced him as your lord and savior and king you know to fail to believe on the lord jesus is an act of disobedience to the king of kings that will not go unpunished the bible says that those who refuse to bend the knee before him in this life will bend the knee before him in the life to come but only it will be too late and they will cast they will be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, and there they will remain for an everlasting eternity. But my friends, it is not too late. and Still the door to the kingdom of heaven is wide open to you, and the Lord himself invites you to come in so long as you repent and believe on his name. Oh, will you do that today. Do not delay. Tomorrow may be too late. Repent and believe, and you shall be saved. But furthermore, if Jesus is Lord, then we must also live for him. You know, there are those who say that we can accept Jesus as our Savior, but not as our Lord. We can do that later when we're ready to do so. In the meantime, we can live in our sins. But that is utterly false. Jesus cannot be divided up like a pie. He is both Savior and Lord. And if he is your Savior, then he must also be your Lord. And that must manifest itself in your life. If Jesus is your Lord, that means you must submit to him. You must do what he says. You must obey him in all things. You must keep his commandments. Are you doing that? Oh, make no mistake. You will either confess Jesus as Lord in this life, or you will be forced to confess him in the next. And then the time of grace will have passed you by, and you will be cast into hell to all eternity. And so listen to the words of our text. God has highly exalted his Son so that every knee may bow before him and every tongue may confess that he is Lord. But the apostle goes even one step further. Not only does he say that God highly exalted his Son and gave him a name that is above every name, he goes on to say that he did all of this to the glory of God the Father. Now, this is not at all what we might have expected. We might have expected that God would exalt the Son for the sake of the Son. After all, he was the one that accomplished the will of the Father, he was the one that suffered and died for the sins of his people. But Paul doesn't say that. He says that the Father exalts the Son so that he himself might be glorified. And we're reminded here, aren't we, that within the Trinity there is a perfect bond of love. There's no competition for glory between the Father and the Son. No, they delight in each other and are continually seeking the glory of the other. But why does Paul mention this? Why does he even speak of the exaltation of Christ? What does this have to do with church unity, which is what he's been talking about in this chapter? Well, don't you see it? What Paul is saying is this. He's saying that the key to church unity is not only to be humble like Christ, it is to love one another and to seek to exalt one another just as the Son exalts the Father and the Father exalts the Son. The pattern for our conduct, especially in the church, must be the Trinity itself. How we relate to each other must be patterned after how the Father relates to the Son, and the Son to the Father. One writer writes this, and I quote, In these verses, the Apostle Paul invites us to honor each other above ourselves, reflecting the mutual affection of the Father and the Son, and by implication the Holy Spirit, and their delight to enhance each other's glory. Well, my friend, is that true for you today? Are you seeking to exalt your brother and sister in Christ more Than yourself. If you're not, you're not of God, for those who are of God are like Him. Well, you say, how then can we do this? Left to ourselves, it is utterly impossible. For this, we need grace grace that can only come from Christ through His Holy Spirit. But the good news is that He is willing and also able to supply us with this grace. Yes in an abundant measure, if we only ask him to do so. My friends, this is why he was humbled. This is why he was exalted, so that he might redeem us from our selfishness and our self-centeredness and make us like himself. And therefore, let our continual prayer be, Lord, help me to love like you love. Help me to exalt my brothers and sisters in Christ in the same way that you exalt the Son, and the Son exalts you. Then and only then will your church be united. Then and only then will I be like you. Amen. We always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you were blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, We'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road. and Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N. And that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X 2M9. If you would like to listen to the message you've just heard again, or if you would like more information about our program, Including how to contact us and how to listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website at banneroftruthradio.com. That website again is banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated. If the Lord has placed in your heart a desire to help us to to offset the costs of broadcasting this program on this station, you can send us a check in any amount. Again, our mailing address is 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can go right to our webpage and make a donation right on the webpage, which is again banneroftruthradio.com. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.